Hey, welcome to Cryptic Chronicles. I'm your host, Tim Hacker, and today on the show we're going to be talking about haunted objects. Oh, and just as a heads up, you probably shouldn't be listening to this if you're a kid. You will regret it. Go away, go on, get out of here. I've had an interest in haunted and cursed things ever since I heard about the mummy's tomb being opened and everybody who did it dying. Haunted objects can seem pretty harmful to people, sometimes even fatal. Whether created in their own mind or real, they've had horrible influences in people's lives, but become a point of interest to people who enjoy being creeped out. Anyway, let's jump right in. Let's start this off with the Island of Dolls. It's cheating because it's not one haunted object, but many. On this island, there's hundreds if not thousands of dolls. And they're all possessed by a spirit, or according to some, many spirits. A little over half a century ago in Mexico, a man named Julian Santana Barrera began living on what would be called the Island of Dolls. He didn't really have a good reason to, he just wanted to live out the rest of his days as a recluse. Early on in his hermit life on the island, he found the floating corpse of a young girl in a canal. And not too far away, he discovered a floating doll that he assumed belonged to her. He buried the body and tried to tell people what happened. But no one knew who the child was and nobody was missing a child. Paranormal activity followed Barrera soon afterward. To try and appease the girl's tormented spirit, he hung the doll that he found that he assumed belonged to her from a tree. Barrera could hear the girl's screams and footsteps in the darkness periodically. It was during these times that he would find other dolls and hang them from the trees to try and appease the girl's spirit. But it was apparent to him he was haunted now. And not only that, but the dolls seemed to become possessed by her and or other spirits too. As time would pass, the number of dolls steadily increased, with the passage of time and the elements giving the dolls a very creepy, decayed appearance. The soulless eyes of the dolls are said to watch and follow visitors as they walk by. Their heads jerk and move suddenly, and the dolls never seem to be in the same position they were last seen in. For over 50 years, Barrera added dolls to the island's collection. So it's literally a massive horde of creepy dolls. All those years, he would hear screams, laughs, and whispers of not just one young girl. EVPs are common on the island. If you're unfamiliar with an EVP, it's an electronic voice phenomenon, when something otherworldly is captured in an audio recording. Video footage has even been taken of dolls moving on their own. The dolls are propped on fences, posts, dangling at the neck from trees, and many bodiless or headless with missing limbs. And people who explore the island say it always feels like something's watching them. Visitors have said that you can't accurately describe the feelings when standing in the middle of all the dolls, with nerves invading you if you approach one, or if you linger too long. 
The island has been in the middle of the lake for over a thousand years. It was made into a garden by the ancient Aztecs, who happened to be the worshippers of gods who demanded human sacrifice. It's believed that this could have led to atrocities on the island, basically cursing it and filling it with negative entities. The little girl drowned in the canal, and Julian Barrera claimed that voices whispered to him to come into the water. The same water he found the drowned child in years before. Barrera's nephew would always remind him not to listen to the whispers but it was clear Barrera was slowly losing his mind over time. In the occult, it's often unwise to give entities a face to inhabit, like masks or large human-like doll heads. Barrera could have unwittingly been giving the entities more power to manifest on the island, the drowned little girl a possible ploy. The same voices that called Barrera into the water could have been calling the little girl, too. Julian Barrera eventually died mysteriously on the island of Dolls. He was found dead floating in the water, exactly where he found the little girl over 50 years before. Julian Barrera had been driven totally insane in his later years. Next is the chair of death. It's said that anyone who sits in this chair prior to death experiences haunting supernatural occurrences, itching, paranoia, hearing things, confusion, and warnings written on walls and mirrors that nobody else can see. Then, after varying amounts of time, that person has a violent death. The chair of death has taken the lives of up to 63 people and is currently located on a wall in a museum to prevent any more people from sitting in it. This haunted object story starts in the late 17th century, in a small town in England. A counterfeiter named Thomas Busby, who had an argument with his father-in-law at a local pub. Busby was a notorious drunk who spent a lot of time at the pub. His father-in-law condemned the drinking and wanted to break up the marriage between Busby and his daughter. But Busby was more concerned about his father-in-law sitting in his favorite chair, telling him to get out of it many times. Instead, his father-in-law continued to taunt him and sit in his chair. Later that night, Thomas Busby went three miles out of his way to his father-in-law's and bludgeoned him to death with a counterfeiting hammer. Later, the body was found and Busby was convicted of the murder. His sentence was death. Busby's last wish was to stop at the local pub his favorite chair was located, and his last wish was granted. When he was done, he put a curse on his chair as he left, declaring that anyone who sat in his chair would find themselves haunted then soon die. He was hanged in 1702, then dipped in pitch and hanged from a gibbet on display. People joked about Busby cursing his chair, but that was before people started to die. The chair remained at the pub for centuries, which would also become an inn. And there's not a single account of anyone who sat in the chair and lived. 
I'll give a couple examples. A young builder's apprentice was dared to sit in the chair, then fell through a roof to his grisly end later that day. While the chair was in the cellar of the pub being stored, a delivery man casually sat in it, totally unaware of its cursed nature. He crashed his car that night and died of complications. During World War II, airmen who sat in the chair never returned home from missions. A cleaning lady once accidentally stumbled into the chair while mopping, later dying from a freak brain tumor. Frustrated from all the deaths over the years and not really interested in profiting over other people's suffering like previous owners of the inn, the owner donated it to a museum where it can be viewed today. It's done killing for a while, though, since it's hung five feet off the ground in a corner and no one can sit in it. Third up is the infamous Dybbuk box. The Dybbuk box is a wine cabinet with a strange darkness to it, but the term comes from Hebrew mysticism. A Dybbuk is a restless, usually malicious spirit, believed to haunt and even possess the living. It's believed a Dybbuk is a human soul dislocated with supernatural abilities. However, there are demonic entities among their ranks. The word dibbik in Hebrew means cling. The evil spirits latch onto something and don't let go. The reason a soul clings to become a dibbik is a burning desire to finish something or gain closure, like a strong will for revenge or an attachment to negative energy from years of abuse unable to reconcile, to even perceived mistakes like what could have been. An example being a lady being possessed by a dibbuk that was meant to marry her had her father not previously broken their marriage agreement. The spirit enters the living person latching on to the soul. It causes mental illness, and an alien part of that person's personality becomes apparent. Possession is a term more often associated with demons, and though some dibbuk are demons, most are unclean human spirits, making them much more dangerous than a typical ghost. It's not just unfinished desire that can cause the creation of a dibbuk upon death. A denuded spirit, so unclean from sins and evil, could become a dibbuk too. The spirit will run away or avoid any opportunity to move on, usually because it thinks it's going to be punished for its deeds in life. So there's many ways that one of these things can come into being. Some other more obscure ones being elementals or renegade thought forms, as well as just the classic demon. According to Kabbalistic knowledge, the malicious spirits can be dealt with. A dibbuk can be bound, exercised, or even in some cases redeemed. As a group of entities, they're known as the dibbukim who are known for violent hauntings, possession, and horrible nightmares. The origins of this infamous Dybbuk box come from eBay. 
In September 2001, it was posted to the auction site, complete with a horrific backstory. Kevin Manis, the owner, got the box from an estate sale in Portland, Oregon, not knowing the darkness that haunted it. The liquidated property for sale belonged to a recently deceased elderly Jewish woman. She had requested that they bury the Dibbit box with her, but obviously the wish hadn't been honored. After owning the box for some time with intentions to refurbish it and give it to his mother as a birthday present, Kevin Manis started becoming aware of strange phenomena. When away from his business, Manis got a call from an employee who was alone at his shop. The Dybbuk box was stored in the basement of the building, the workshop where Kevin Manis refurbished antiques. His employee called him in a panic, almost screaming that there was an intruder in the building. Someone was breaking glass and swearing loudly in the basement workshop, and that the bars to the shop were put in place by the intruder, locking her inside. So Manis raced back to his business, speeding the whole way there. He found his employee on the ground in his office. She was sobbing and shaking with fear. Then Manis went down into the basement to confront the intruder. When he entered, all the lights had been shattered, so he had to rely on his flashlight to see. The debris of glass were scattered everywhere. And to his surprise, there was an overwhelming smell of cat urine in the workshop, which baffled him because he'd never owned or let a cat inside the workshop before much less the amount of cats it would take to make such an overwhelming odor of cat pee. But there was no intruder down there. With only one way in or out, there was literally no way the intruder could have escaped without running into Manus. But as he scanned with his flashlight, there in the corner was the Dybbuk box. The terrified employee never returned to work, even though she was a dedicated employee who had been working there for two years. And till this day, she refuses to speak of the incident. Obviously, something strange happened, but Kevin Manis tried to shrug it off. When he began the project of refurbishing the Dibbit box, he noticed the masterful way it was constructed. It was carpentry of the highest quality. A mechanism built into it caused the bottom drawer to automatically open when the two main doors were opened. Inside the Dibbit box, Manis found an odd assortment of objects. There were two extremely old copper pennies, a granite slab engraved with the word shalom written in Hebrew, two locks of hair bound with string, one blonde, one dark brown-black, a golden wine cup, a dried-up rose, and a black cast iron candlestick holder with a very decorative design. Though he was unaware at the time, these items were part of a mystic ritual of occult magic, which bound the Dybbuk entity to the box and greatly diminished its power. The pennies were 100% copper. All throughout history, copper has been used to battle demonic presences and witchcraft. It's also a potent form of protection under the right rituals in Kabbalah, the Jewish mystical tradition. The hair must be from the ones who summoned the Dybbuk into their lives because a lot of times a price has to be paid for those kinds of things, with a part of that person or people bound to that box as well. It sucks, but it's a lot better than it running around free. The small granite slab is inscribed with the word shalom, which is a divine word for peace. 
the sigil dampening the Dybbuk's power to manifest. The slab of granite charged with psychic energy through ritual magic. The golden wine cup special is usually used at Jewish wedding ceremonies and is a symbol to bring good health and prosperity, with instead of wine being in the cup, it's filled with faith and positive energy. And despite the cup being gold, it was actually made of brass, which is mainly made of copper. And like I mentioned earlier with the pennies, copper is used to ward off evil spirits. The rose is used in occult rituals and is a common item in many esoteric arts, sometimes representing the divine soul like in Rosicrucianism, basically the sliver of God that's in everybody. The single candlestick is associated with the Shabbat Jewish tradition. It's a symbol of peace and light in the darkness. So, somebody who really knew what they were doing in the occult helped trap this Dybbuk in the box. Because that's no amateur hour. You might be wondering how it all started. And whose hair is in the box? Well, luckily, as the more infamous this haunted box has become, the more has come to light concerning its beginnings. During World War II in Poland, the country was in ruins from Nazi occupation. During this time, Poland was engulfed in death, poverty, fear, and sadness. Basically an absolute all-you-can-eat buffet for anything demonic or malevolent spirits. Remember earlier at the beginning of this story, the elderly Jewish woman who had died that was the original owner of the Dybbuk box? Well, she was captured by Nazis as well as her entire family. She's basically right in the middle of all this World War II carnage in Poland. They were all sent to a brutal internment camp, and her whole family were murdered there. Many right in front of her. She alone survived by escaping and living out the rest of the war in Spain. This is where the old woman told the rest of the family that she got the box, and was one of the three items she brought with her when she immigrated to the United States. For the rest of her life, it was kept out of the way and not easily accessible, and never opened. When asked what was in the box, she'd spit three times, put her index finger to her lips as if to say silence, then simply say Dybbuk. When asked what a Dybbuk was, she wouldn't explain, but she would make everyone swear never to open it. But she probably didn't even have to do that because the rest of her family were equally creeped out by the box, even outright refusing it when it was offered back to them for free by Kevin Manis. And when talking to Manis, the granddaughter acted really bizarre and then ran off crying. Upon inspecting the cabinet to refurbish it as a present for his mother, Kevin Manis decided it was already in excellent condition, and just oiled and cleaned it. When he tried to give the items inside the Dybbuk box back to the family, they just outright refused. So when he gave the Dybbuk box to his mom, he just left the items inside it. She was very excited. But then Manus had to leave the room to make a call. When he returned, he found his mother sitting in a chair beside the box. Her face was blank and expressionless, but with tears running down her cheeks. And no matter what Manus did, she would not respond. He had to call an ambulance and she was taken to the hospital. It turned out his mom had a stroke and lost the ability to speak. When he visited her, she could only point out letters to spell what she wanted to say. She said she hated the gift 
He then gave it to his sister, who returned it quickly to him, saying the doors wouldn't stay shut. Then he gave it to his brother, who also quickly returned it to him, saying that it reeked of cat piss. He then gave it to his girlfriend, who returned it almost immediately. He then sold it to a couple, but three days later it was left for him with a note on it saying, This has a bad darkness. So Kevin Manis took it back home with him, and that very night he had a horrible nightmare. He was walking with somebody he knew and trusted, when all of a sudden they violently altered into the appearance of a horrifying, demonic-looking old hag, which would then beat him. This would become a reoccurring nightmare, and he would even have the physical bruises where he was beat by the hag when he woke up. After suffering for a while from the reoccurring nightmares and paranormal activity, he had his sister, brother, and his brother's wife stay the night at his house. The next day, his sister complained about having a horrible nightmare, one she'd had before. Manus asked her to tell them what the nightmare was about, then was astonished that his sister was saying his own recurring dream almost word for word. His brother and sister-in-law were surprised too. They had the same dream the night before, a dream that they'd also had before. They concluded that the hag dream happened when each one of them were temporarily in possession of the box. The same demonic old hag had horrified them all, and they all smelled the cat urine stench the box sometimes exudes. Finally, pretty freaked out, Manus put it in an outside storage unit. But it didn't help. One night when he was sleeping, the fire alarm went off in the storage room. When Manus checked on it, there was no smoke. Just the Dybbuk box and the smell of cat piss. When he returned back into his house, the smell of cat urine was in there too. He began noticing shadow figures out of the corner of his eyes, as well as visitors to his home claiming to see these shadow beings too. He would wake up with one breathing on his neck, then run out of the room down the hall. People always asked him what happened to him because of his constant bruises from the nightly beating of the hag. When Manus finally decided to do research on the internet about the box, he became very troubled by what he found. And eventually, he would list it on eBay. Bad luck follows anyone who has even seen the Dybbuk box. In fact, even just talking about it is supposed to get the attention of the hag. Kevin Manis's lease on his business was terminated for no reason shortly after he owned the box. Owners since the eBay auction of the haunted object all claim strange happenings to occur when the box is around. People have suffered from health problems, mania, and all kinds of other bad things. Anyone who comes across the box suffers some kind of misfortune, as well as horrifying paranormal activity. Jewish rabbis have resealed the Dybbuk box recently, and it currently resides in the Museum of Zach Baggins. Listeners, Cryptic Chronicles is available on iTunes as well as all popular podcast apps and web hosts. Or please visit us at crypticchroniclespodcast.com for full content. Send us an email. We would love to hear from you. Join us on our social media to keep updated. And thanks for supporting the show. Please leave us a good review on iTunes to help grow the podcast. But most of all, thanks for listening. 
Welcome back. Next is the Björkatorp runestone. The Björkatorp runestone in Sweden is part of a grave field of solitary and forming stone circles. It's among the world's tallest Viking runestones at 14 feet tall and it dates back to the 6th or 7th century. It's possible the location is a grave, and the stone and curse are meant to protect it. There's just so little known about it. It's been speculated it could be a memorial to a gravesite elsewhere, or even a shrine to Odin. Though debatable, the runes are thought to mean, and I quote, I, master of the runes, conceal here runes of power, incessantly plagued by maleficence, doomed to insidious death is he who breaks this monument. I prophesy destruction. End quote. There's other translations. They all get the point across. The runes are made with Elder Fathark, which is the oldest known form of runic alphabet. In 1914, an archaeological investigation around the stone showed no signs of human remains in the area, leaving only speculation to its purpose. One of the few things known about it is that its mysterious curse seems to be real. A man once tried to remove this stone, wanting to cultivate the land for farming. It was a calm weather day. No winds, blue skies. He meant to heat the stone with fire, then crack it by pouring cold water over it. But as he went to light the flame, a powerful wind blew towards him, setting his clothes and hair on fire. The man burned alive, unable to stop the flames. He died in a slow, flaming agony. Next is the Myrtle's Plantation Mirror. The Myrtle's Plantation is supposedly the most haunted house in America. But every haunted place says that, so it's not really worth much. It's a dark place, though, with a long history of hauntings. The plantation is in Louisiana, and was built in 1796. There are those who will tell you that ten people were murdered in the house. In truth, according to official records, only a single murder has ever taken place at the plantation, and that was the murder of William Winter, who was shot and died on the front porch of the home. Other stories try and say that he crawled up the stairs and then died there, but that's just BS. However, apparitions of him have been seen and heard staggering or crawling up the stairs in a ghastly apparition. But just because only one murder has ever taken place there doesn't mean that there aren't more ghosts. Spirits latch on to things and travel regularly. It's like a magnet to entities. So something strange or some things definitely have a presence there. Examples of paranormal activity at the Myrtle's Plantation are strange figures constantly captured on camera, objects moving on their own in plain sight, shadow people, EVPs, figures in windows dressed out of place and time, otherworldly voices, and pretty much all the things said to occur in hauntings. The most haunted and famous thing in the house, though, is a mirror. The story surrounding the mirror isn't true. It's just a legend that grew with its own life over time. But the supernatural occurrences concerning the mirror are very real. The legend goes like this. The Myrtle family owned a slave named Chloe. 
versions of the story contradict each other, giving more evidence to the falsehood of the story, but they basically have the same outcomes. Either Mr. Myrtle wanted to make the slave Chloe a mistress and she refused, or she overheard sensitive information regarding Mr. Myrtle's business through eavesdropping. Chloe was punished by having her ear cut off. She then wore a green turban to hide the mutilation. Later, Chloe poisoned a cake. Contradicting versions say this was either an attempt to win back good graces by saving the poisoned Mr. Myrtle, or it was just straight-up vengeance. A tradition concerning mirrors in the old days was to cover them up when someone in the house dies. Otherwise, their spirit would become trapped in the mirror. Well, Mr. Myrtle didn't eat the cake Chloe made for him. His wife and children did. Then, shortly after, died from the poison. The mirror concerning this legend was not covered up, trapping the spirits of the mother and children within it. The slave Chloe was then hanged or drowned. According to legend, she too haunts the grounds. But like I said, it's a false story, but there has been a ghost seen many times who perfectly resembles the slave, complete with the green turban and everything. But just like in seances or Ouija boards, there is always an entity willing to pretend to be what people want to see. Children's handprints are often found on the mirror, and these prints are as if it came from the other side of the mirror, as if trapped inside. Even if washed and cleaned, the handprints always come back. It's said if you look into the mirror long enough, ghostly apparitions will stare back at you. When people take pictures of the mirror, many pictures show the distorted images of otherworldly manifestations. Some pictures even seem like the image was captured through the opposite side of the mirror. Drip marks run the length of the mirror, unable to be wiped away. Figures in old-timey clothing are seen to be standing behind the onlooker's reflection. Anyone who is familiar with the Bloody Mary legend from childhood has grown up with a slight suspicion towards mirrors. And though the story behind this mirror is fiction, the paranormal activity surrounding it is very real. The last haunted object I want to talk about will be the Delphine painting. This portrait has been claimed to be the most haunted painting in the world. It's caused so much terror and supernatural phenomena that it's locked away in an unknown location to protect people. A demon supposedly haunts this painting, taking on the form of Delphine Lalori. Those who view the painting are overcome with some sort of darkness. Their chest becomes knotted and heavy with unsettling emotions festering within their minds. The woman in the portrait, Madame Delphine Lalaurie, was a well-known social butterfly in New Orleans during the 19th century. Being a wealthy aristocrat, she indulged in a lavish and decadent lifestyle. The Madame loved to host parties, with all the most famous aristocratic names of the day invited. Then, on one fateful day in 1854, there was a kitchen fire in Madame Delphine Lalaurie's patrician home. The inferno quickly grew. Some who witnessed the fire ran into the home bravely in an attempt to save the occupants. 
The Lalori were the owners of many slaves who were all locked inside the burning house. When someone intent on rescuing the innocent slave families asked Delphine for the keys to free them, Madame Lalori refused them in a gross and insulting manner. Appalled, the bystanders ignored any more of the cruel woman's protests and kicked down the doors to the slave apartments. What they found was even worse than Madame Delphine's lack of value for her slave's safety and was described as too incredible for human belief. There were torture dens that modern horror movie gore porn would seem softcore when compared to. Seven people were discovered horribly mutilated. Decaying corpses protruded from a hole in the floor. Some had been hung from the ceiling, their skin flayed, ripped, and pulled wide and thin. Some with their limbs torn off, stretched in grotesque ways, the slaves no longer resembling humans. Many were imprisoned in very painful positions, iron-spiked collars forced on their necks greatly reducing head mobility. Slaves' backs were ripped and torn from countless thrashings, leaving leathery scar tissue protruding and, in some cases, bones visually poking out. The entire area smelled of feces, urine, blood, and decay, moans coming from all directions. Someone who saw all this said, and I quote, Language is powerless and inadequate to give a proper conception of the horror which a scene like this must have inspired. End quote. Later it became apparent that the fire had been started on purpose. The household cook was chained extremely close to the blazing fireplace. In a moment of despair, the cook concluded it was better that they all burn together than suffer under Madame LaLaurie's sadism any longer. The madame had a reputation for grace and high culture among the upper-class socialites, but some had suspected hidden secrets of malevolent nature. The repulsive appearances of her tortured slaves had been seen by neighbors on occasion, and a local lawyer had even warned Madame LaLaurie if evidence was found she were performing illegal cruel treatment of her slaves, he would see to it that they would be confiscated from her, then resold by the state. But nothing could stop the madame and her sick pleasures. A neighbor once saw Delphine LaLaurie chase a child with a cow whip across her property. The horrified woman gazed in astonishment as the madame chased the girl all the way up to the roof, and instead of face her deranged mistress, commit suicide by jumping off the roof to her demise. The neighbor later saw the girl's body being buried in a shallow grave in a corner of the yard like someone might do with a dead cat. This lady was seriously messed up. It's so dark to think that death would be better than the madame's punishment. But yeah, it probably was. Every day after breakfast, she would flog people until she couldn't anymore, like some kind of sick workout, only stopping when her strength gave out. Seems like a story, but no, this is real-life horror. Over a hundred years later, skulls and bones are still being found randomly on the property. How people didn't stop this insane slave master earlier is beyond me. In her mind, the inflicting of intense physical pain and mutilation on people she thought were her property was completely normal. When confronted, the madame couldn't even comprehend anything she did was wrong. Delphine LaLaurie was chased out of town and fled to France for sanctuary. 
Her home was wrecked and property demolished by the vengeful mob. She died in exile, living the rest of her life in quiet seclusion. In the 1970s, the madame's former property was renovated for the building of apartments. In 1997, owners of the property where the torture mansion once stood hired an artist. They commissioned a portrait of the previous owner of the property, the Madame Delphine Lalori. Why they would do this, or if they even knew who the Madame was, is not clear. But when it was done and the painting was hung up for display, I'm sure you can guess not all was normal. In fact, none of it was normal. Rumors began to spread by people who'd seen the painting. In fact, everyone who glanced at the painting seemed to be affected, whether they knew who the woman in the portrait was or not, because most people had no clue who she was. Shortly after it was hung on the wall, ghosts became a frequent sight, with shadowy apparitions walking the halls of the apartments and seen within the dwellings. But one dark entity above all became manifest when the portrait was placed. And this is the entity most prominent in the accounts of the Delphine painting. It's said to be the soul of Madame LaLaurie herself. Others say it's a demon. Or the amalgamation of many tortured souls of slaves manifest into a single entity. Maybe all three could be true. Reports of supernatural activity common with the painting are it moving by itself, rocking violently until it falls to the floor, malevolence emanating from the portrait, unnerving any onlooker, objects moving on their own, echoing, voices, missing personal possessions, cold touches, whispers talking to people directly, knowing their names, and much detail about them, ghostly footsteps following people, nightmares, and other messed up stuff. The artist who painted the portrait said he never intended such darkness to be attached to the painting, and had no odd paranormal occurrences when he was painting it. He even made other versions of the portrait afterward, with none showing signs of paranormal activity. Today the painting is locked away and unable to view. The private collector who currently owns the painting, mysterious and unable to track down. hope you got creeped out this episode. The producer, Ashley, got sick during this episode. So if we pissed off any spirits, I'm glad it rubbed off on her, not me. Cryptic Chronicles is available on iTunes, as well as all popular podcast apps. If you got the time, please leave us a good review on iTunes, or support us at crypticchroniclespodcast.com. I'm your host, Tim Hacker, and sorry if the old hag from the Dybbuk box haunts you tonight.
Bada bing, bada boom, bada bing, bum boom. That was my butt. Not too. Ah! Oh, that was my butt. <laughs>